Tonight, we welcome Victims Family, a band that is celebrating their 30th anniversary this summer. Formed in Santa Rosa in 1984, the band has been highly influential for generations of players and fans in the Bay Area punk scene and beyond. The band has a lot of history with the stage we sit on currently, the Phoenix and Petaluma, where they are playing their 30th anniversary concert this summer. So tonight, we welcome to the program Ralph, Larry, and Tim, Victims Family. Thank you guys for coming. Thanks, Jim. Thanks for having us. We're also very fortunate to have Gabe Moline here tonight, who is, in my opinion, the preeminent music journalist and ultimate resource for all things Sonoma County music. So welcome, Gabe Moline. Thank you very much. Glad to be back. So we had Gabe on a few episodes ago, and he said something about Victim Family that really stuck with me. He said that Ralph and Larry, those guys were like Lennon and McCartney to me when I was growing (laughs) up. What informs that statement, Gabe? Well, um, I think because I... Uh, like many people spend their formative years marinating in the music of the Beatles, I spent my formative years instead marinating in the music of Victim's Family. And for about, you know, how I learned how to play bass and guitar was playing along the Victim's Family records, which is no easy task. (laughs) It's kind of like boot camp for learning how to play the bass in particular. So they were just very influential in the same way that the Beatles are influential over the rest of the world people in the world that aren't me (laughs) but i mean you're not alone in that i mean there were a lot of people who grew up in this scene who were influenced by these guys too yeah absolutely i mean whenever victim's family played and sorry to speak of you in the third person here guys but whenever they played you couldn't ignore them i mean they really had an immense power it was thunderous it was compelling it was you know, you might even hate it, you know, but <laughs> you might, but there's no ignoring it. There's no know? ignoring it. And there's the, whole, no, the whole building would blow up. Yeah. I mean, there's no, and there was no ignoring the, the incredible technical talent, the imaginative compositional skills um, for the times that you could hear the lyrics. They were outstanding yeah. and they really built sets perfectly. Like they would weave songs together differently. Every single show you saw. Um, they would, you know, just do a lot of clever manipulations in their set. You and I were talking about this earlier, Tom. You said that the the, the pits and the music were very special from this band in oh, particular. Yeah, at a, at a victim show. You know, I, I got turned on to alternative music, I think, right at the beginning when it was just starting to become a thing. Uh, late 80s, early 90s, and... Uh, the pit was quite incredible. The The first pit I ever saw was an Op Ivy pit, actually, over at the uh, Katati Cabaret. And I was hooked. But then once we were, once I was able to move pits over to the floor here and see how big and immense they could be, victims' pits were always intense, uh, never a dull moment. Uh, everybody would move as one, undulate together. Somebody would fall. You'd be lifted and moved along. And uh, you'd have these guys just driving the floor and, and controlling almost every move with the pit. It became a living, breathing thing, and it was controlled uh, every breath by the band on the stage. And that was Victim's Family. Maybe for somebody who's never heard of Victim's Family, it'd be good to kind of tell them a little bit of the backstory with the genre. You're a punk band, but you've just gone in all sorts of weird directions, which is kind of difficult to classify. You know? Right. And so can we talk a little bit about that? I don't know. I'll, I'll, I'll meet people, and they'll be asking me like oh you're in a band like what kind of music do you play <laughs> i'll be like oh it's a punk band you know it's like i i can't even because for me that's i i think all of us were you know playing music before we understood or knew punk and um i mean i know for myself i was playing guitar before i discovered that punk was something that i could be into you know and uh 
And also, I think it has to do with Sonoma County. I mean, I think it's an incredible uh, scene for um, for how small a place it is. You know, it's like, and it's always been tight knit. And it's that time too, just because there were no venues, no that there had to be a scene of a lot of bands coming out. And and it's the originality that was, I think, in the early punk movement, where you look at the like the early bands from New York there wasn't like a unified sound or anything, you know, and I, I don't know, you know, how much we can really identify with that, but I, I did identify with the fact that it seemed like all the barriers got broken. And so for my own personal history, it was like, I was <clears throat> trying to get better as a musician. So I was going to Santa Rosa JC and taking, uh, like, uh, taking jazz improvisation at the same time I was going down to the on Broadway and the Mabuhe to go see black flag and the dead Kennedys and all these things. So it's just this kind of convergence of all those things happening at once. And to me, what we were doing was hardcore and we kind of started happening right in the middle of hardcore starting to become more metal. And there was a few bands that really changed a lot of things for me. Uh, as, after I, Discovered Punk, The Dead Kennedys for sure, Black Flag for sure. And then The Minutemen, when I discovered them a couple of years later, that was the thing that made me know that you can do anything. And and that it was still sort of legal, that you didn't have to be, you know, like we could still be a punk band. And at, by that time, it's just like we didn't care. We just, we wanted to be um, extreme in any way we could or challenge people. Like Gabe, Gabe was talking about, like, I, I really like that about Victim's Family. It's like, People might hate us, you know, but the people that are into it are really into it. And so, you know, we got a, like a fervent uh, cult following, well, you let's say, you know. Great strong following. <laughs> and and that's great. Something that gets applied to describing your music a lot is jazz. Right. And yeah. yet there's not a lot, if any, real improvisation in your music. Yeah, exactly. you know, even in right. songs there's, like... There's like, there's like a millisecond or two. <laughs> you know, even in George Benson, which right. is the most obvious jazz reference in your song titles, well, or Things you know, I Hate to Admit, or, you know, instrumentals that you guys have, Devin Drool and stuff, that right. you play the exact same solos as are on your album. Right, well, I mean, there's the, the way yeah. I construct the solo is like there's... there's Because it usually goes by so fast, because that was the thing that made it punk, was like, you can have a solo, but it can't go on for very long. You yeah. know what I mean? Yeah. Like at that time, like it was doing, you know, short songs, really quick breaks and things like that. Yeah. And yeah, people started calling it jazz. You know, part of it was that you guys definitely very seldom would you fall into the one, four, five that, you know, that had that hook. See, this is the other thing is like people <laughs> think we're sitting there like um, counting time signatures and, and we're just sort of like, no, it goes da 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 like, I, That's I never, how you communicate to each other yeah, when you're writing much, a song. Yeah, the, yeah. Yeah. How much music theory do you really discuss regarding your songs? I mean, do you say, oh, I'm going to play a major seventh flat fifth here and we'll do it in seven, eight time and I think or back, does it just come naturally? Back then, we wouldn't really talk about that at all. I think more now, like if we are are like we talk more in the those kind of terms but i think back then it was more sort of like no it just kind of does this and you can do that you know yeah it was really more feel based we would sometimes count it out so we could teach it to the other person we'd sort of have to count it out but we wouldn't compose with the time signature it was more about getting the feel like to me i and i think there was a lot of bands in europe i think after we went over there and a lot of people said that we you know a lot of people tried to cop our thing and uh -huh. yeah. and i felt like 
um, what why it maybe wasn't working for them was because <laughs> was because we weren't concerned with that. We were more concerned with like there's this crazy rhythm that goes like this. It's more about making it rock mm-hmm. than it is about making so, it add up in a proper yeah. mathematical <laughs> equation. Well, make it have a groove. Yeah. You know, yeah. like yeah. that's no, no that's really the thing. Start with oh, a yeah. groove. Never. Yeah. 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 Go from there. And, then, and then it doesn't really matter what the time signature is because if it grooves, then you're going to move to it. To me, everything was on the table, you know, and it kind of still is. Yeah. You know, when I, when I got into this with these guys and I, I was the biggest fan of theirs ever before I got in the band and worshipped everything that went on. And once I got into where I had to play these songs, it was never any. Okay, this. Okay, Tim, this one's in six eight, and there's like four bars of two four. Then it goes into. It was like. This is the song, and I knew it, and I just rocked it as best I could, you know. And as we created songs beyond me playing the early songs, it was the same kind of feel where it was an emotional feel, and the part goes like this, and I just went like, yes, yeah, I see that, I feel that, and played. And, and even to this day, I have people come and go, man, how do you go from 7-8 to 4-2 to 6-5 to 14-13 and that one thing? I'm like... We don't need what are you talking about? I just play the part, bro. It's like, I don't know what yeah. the hell. He's like, well, I got it all written out. I did like music for it. I'm like, dude, that's a, the, the, you're on that's, your own, bro. That's the thing where it doesn't get into being King Crimson. You know, yeah. I mean, they're great, but it's like, you know. but that's not what we're doing. It's not, I never wanted it to step over the line into being intellectual yeah. or to, into actually being jazz. And I think that, know? well, I think that that classifies you as a true jazz band. I mean, if you think about jazz history, there are, um, college courses on the music theory of Charlie Parker. There mm. are like intricate breakdowns of John Coltrane performances um, by key, by scale, by time signature, by what have you. And Charlie Parker and John Coltrane weren't thinking about that kind of stuff when they no. were playing it. You know, no. they were thinking about the groove. Yeah. Right. They were thinking about the spirit of it, the soul. Well, of the it. improv yeah. was the most important part of yeah. right. of it all, yeah. and that's why we're not jazz. Yeah. because there's, there's not all that much improvisation. <laughs> yeah. But what I was going to say was like when I'm constructing a solo, there's sort of like there's like four parts to it, right? There's the okay, there's the Nina 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 part, and then there's that part, and then like the third part will always be like. Do whatever you 2. want. 2.5 section, <laughs> oh, yeah. seconds of yeah. improvisation, and then there'll be, like, you know, the, the outro. Somewhere online in the golden world of everyone's past being on the internet now, I've seen a picture of you two, I think, maybe at a house on 3rd Street holding a test pressing of Voltage and Violets. When, oh, yeah. That's and a, well, jo- joy on your faces. Yes. Yeah. That was the first record you guys had ever made, physical, yeah. tactile yeah. record that you could yeah. hold. How, how big was that to put out an album? Oh, uh, Huge, Massive, yeah. mm-hmm. but interestingly, you released a cassette tape a year before that, right? And then yes. you toured with No Effects prior to the release of. We Voltage played one we, show with No Effects. We <laughs> played. It, it was strange because the first thing I ever heard hardcore wise was I was driving in my car and Maximum Rock and Roll came on KPFA, and I was like, Maximum Rock and Roll, <laughs> you know, like Ooh. what's that? So then I started reading the magazine and all that, and I got interested in like the idea that. Uh, there's a lot of people putting on shows all over the place yeah. that you could just go. So <clears throat> we just went, you know, like uh, summer of 85. That that tour, considering we had no release and no merchandise, basically, uh, actually did was all right. You know, I mean, we survived it. We were still a band at the end of it. And 
Yeah, we that's... played some really excellent shows. So you mentioned you were listening to Maximum Rock and Roll, uh-huh. and that, that kind of opened your eyes a little bit. Well, yeah, I didn't even know about hardcore punk, and then I met a couple of hardcore punk guys. So this is 1981, and I met a couple of hardcore punk guys in Sonoma. You know, But it was really strange because uh, like right before my junior year of high school, um, my mom and I had moved up from Concord. So like I went to junior and senior year of high school in Sonoma, so it was really strange to me because then me and my best friend Patrick, we found out about, you know, punk. We like shaved our heads and went to the show in Walnut Creek. And there was like, <laughs> like there were the Dead Kennedys were playing, you know, it was like, you know, Maximum Rock. And then I was just totally into it. You know, I was just like sold all my rock records at the last record store and just wow. started buying like, you know, hardcore stuff, you know. And so Ruth Schwartz, she ran the Maximum Rock and Roll zine. Yeah, well, she was involved in that, yeah. Yeah. More, the, she was more the radio that. station than the zine. Yeah. And then she also was behind the uh, Mortem Records, which yeah. released your first three releases. Yeah, yeah, yeah. She played a large role in this band's success. Yeah, so, she, you know, yeah. she uh, she saw us play and was really into the band and, you know. Smitten. And the Sonoma County connection, she told me later, she was really, well, this felt like I wanted to do that, you know. Mortem Records was primarily not a record label but a distributor well they like, were a, well, they, a label in the did, beginning the, she the, label. Did, the rhythm pigs and you guys and some yeah, more. Yeah, i think um, she did eight or nine releases before they folded up yeah. the label so there was three three she, of ours the she faith did, no more first, first thing she did was faith yeah. no more's first record that's right then rhythm pigs first record then our first record yeah and that's when uh <laughs> that's when johannan coined the term uh schwartz core before we were called Jazzcore, there was Schwartzcore because he just thought she was like, you know, all the fringe stuff in the scene at the time. Yeah, right. And he, he was not, he was a supporter, but not a huge fan. But right. like, he was just, oh, that, all that Schwartzcore, you know, all that weird <laughs> stuff. Like, yeah. Did so. the fact that your albums had basically instant distribution through Mordam Records as, oh, that, as a distributor, did that help you? Oh my God, I mean, it totally well. helped. It's strange because we can't, totally came out of that punk scene, the DIY scene, but like we actually didn't do it ourselves, really. Like yeah. people, you know, <laughs> like we got signed to a label and it was actually, Ruth was really super cool to us. I mean, you know, all, all along the way, this band has been, um, a lot of people have like helped us out just because they really loved our music. And we had some... <clears throat> insanely great deal with Mordem. Like, it might have even been illegal how good our, our record deal was with them. You know, like, we actually made money on those records. You know, it was like, they, they sold, We there were royalties. <laughs> it was like, wow. people bought the record, you know, it was crazy. It was like, I mean, we didn't sell a lot of records. We never even thought of it that way, but of course, you want, you know, you put on a record, you want people to buy it. Well, another significant thing that she did for us was license the record to uh, Conquerell in Amsterdam. That's right. Which, you know, really unbeknownst to us, I think. And it had been doing well over there. So, yeah. Yeah. That opened up so many doors. Yeah, a whole new market. Now, what uh, changed in the evolution of the band between Voltage and Violets and Things I Hate to Admit? I kind of classify them as your hardcore debut album, and then it went into this psychedelic territory well there's a there's a couple of factors at work there first there was the 1987 tour which basically almost broke this band up. in fact it we didn't play essentially we, did, we didn't yeah. play after the we went on tour for three months in 1987 for a few months like wow. i want to say like five or six months we didn't play was that stress and, from uh, the road 
Yeah, it was we we were on a ninety day tour where we played like I think thirty three shows. You know the um, the transmission went out in Madeira, right. and you know, and right. then we like sat in the mechanic's house and watched videos and drank beer for three days, and then drove twenty four <laughs> hours straight through to El Paso to play a show with Bomb with six, you know in front of six people. And I think it was like the promoter in Amarillo, like, you know, wouldn't oh, yeah. pay us. We had to call the cops and he pulled a gun and like all this stuff. And then we got all our stuff ripped off in Tulsa. So the, the, got the main... Got kicked out of Canada. So the thing... Yeah, can we, yeah. hear, can we got, talk about that? Because there's a rumor that you were banned and playing Canada for a year. Is that yes, true? Yes, it's, it's absolutely true. Yes. And what's the backstory from that one? I'm thinking I'm going to let Larry <laughs> field this one because it makes him look bad. So I think he's going to be able well, to cover himself. So. It's been too long to really feel bad anymore. Okay, good. We sort of put a lot of uh, faith into one promoter who assured us he was going to take care of all the ins and outs of us crossing the border. And, you know, I got you covered. Don't worry. Just come up to the border, uh, give them your names, and they'll know who you are, and he'll let you through. And Well, that didn't happen the first day, and we're living on pennies, really. Like, we had no money. We, I don't That's the know. tour where we sold blood plasma, right? Yeah, we hadn't yeah. yet, but we, we were... <laughs> Weeks away from selling. I'm not even blood. kidding. No, like, we, Ralph is and that I, real? That's a true story. No, that's yeah. that's real. Like I remember, we we're like we're sitting, we're both sitting there with like right. the you know the IV thing in there. So like Larry looks at me, he's like, "This is a really weird channel." <laughs> that is a great thing. You know, yeah, we you know how much money you got for your blood? Eight dollars. I don't know. Eight dollars. So we go camping. But yeah, we, like, we camp you know, we gather our few dollars we have. We get a case of beer and a campsite. We're and looking we're across. Just, I guess Lake Erie. You know, at Canada City Radio. Yeah, we're yeah Niagara drinking bush beer, looking and at so Canada. And so we go back the next day and like, no, still you know you're not on the. So we're calling the dude, like the promoter, and he's like, ah, yeah, uh, about that. Okay, here's here's the new plan. <laughs> go down to a different border where they don't know you, and just tell them that you're recording. And I've got a buddy with a recording studio, you know, because you have to explain why you have gear. Obviously, yeah, yeah. some money is going to be exchanged, but. No, you're not, you're not paying for the recording. You're not getting paid. You're just coming over to record. We got a guy to vouch for you, so we go and we do that. We go to the next border. It's totally working. We have nothing to be worried about, nothing illegal in the van, right? No, no contraband. We're not really worried, although there's somebody, like, searching the whole time we're getting processed. She's just about to hand us our papers, and the guy comes in with this little brown paper bag that he found on the dashboard, with postcards that I had been writing, one to my father, saying, "Hey, we're at the Niagara Falls, and we're we're trying to get across here." Like, oh, well, you no. know, so <laughs> <laughs> he totally caught us in a lie. Just something that innocent, you know. Yeah. He so read my mail. He and, read my mail. So we got yeah. eighty-six from Canada. Yeah, and she's oh. like, hmm. And they just, took down your but name I mean, that, right? and like, they banned like, you for a year. Yeah, it's like hey, they banned us for a year, and then we had like a week of nothing. You know, like, because that yeah, was the yeah. next week of shows, basically. So that whole tour, I mean, you know, there was the gun incident in Amarillo, and then there was the... the Followed by a girl fight with razor blades. Yeah. And a, and and a then, nude mock wedding. And then there was like, yeah, right, exactly, yeah. And This then, would break up a band? No, 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 no. Oh, this was were, the good, that was the good part. Oh, these are the good parts. <laughs> this is what inspires yeah. the next round but, of songs, Tom. Anyway, to get to your original question, yeah. I think, it, which was about uh, which was about the sound of things I hate to admit, yeah. was was all our gear got ripped off. So the sound changed significantly, you know, and I think that was one big thing. I also think that it was a really fertile time for writing, I think because of the experiences of the tour in my mind, why in a nutshell starts the second record. It's like, you know, with this, 
you know, we had so many dreams, so many possibilities. Like what I was trying to say was like, it's already over. This is already done. We're not going to make it here. Did you feel that way when you were recording the record? That you would just record it and then break up? Well, I, you know, and then Devin left in pretty short order after that. So he just, he couldn't, he couldn't take it or me. I don't know what the hell it was. (laughs) And his, you know, his personal life or whatever he did it his girlfriend got pregnant and he was just like, you know, forget it, mm-hmm. you know. It was a time where just a lot of stuff was happening and then I guess you were invited by the European label or uh, label in Amsterdam concurrent to tour and yeah. that was a big was, deal I too. Was, was that your yeah. first European tour, all of you? Yeah. Yes. Yep. So that stands out probably as a big moment in your lives. Right? Yes. Absolutely, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> all right, so there's two little stories I heard from that tour that I'd love to get the backstory on. Number one, you were stripped. Two rumors. Rumors. So here we are to set the record straight. Number one, you were strip searched in Norway. We were strip searched in Norway at the wow. border. And why did that happen? Because... They Paul McGivern. <laughs> because we had a crusty tour manager at the time, and at that time as well, everybody had drugs in their van. It, that was yeah. it. They thought everybody okay. that came across so, the border had drugs. So. Pot was, maybe not isn't, is anymore, but is decriminalized in Holland. We yeah. were driving a Dutch van with a hippie English driver who was not wearing shoes for a long time. Yeah. And his feet looked like it. Black. He had toilet paper tied in his hair. We showed up at the border at, I don't know, it was like early in the morning. Right? With some guy with we took it, was ferry. it was afternoon because we, we were on the, the way gig. to the show. We yeah. The so we get to the border. And here's the thing this is back in the days when you could bring like everything like on an airplane. And I had, I think I had the Mesa Boogie or the Angle. I had the Angle. The, the German amp. In a, I had a German amp in a road case that I like rolled onto the plane, you know, oh like you check it in you know? your carry on. No, it was, oh, it was my check luggage, but I mean, okay. you cannot do that stuff now. No. And, and then this is before the European union. So there were borders everywhere, you know, and everybody had their own customs and everybody had their own. So we were stopping, like, you know, you drive through two countries in a day. And so you have to stop with all these border cops every time and show them the carnet, show them the list of the gear. American rock band. And then they go, there's a German amp in there. I want to see that, you know, so you have to unload the entire van, you know, you know, so he goes into the Norwegian customs office and they look at him and they look at the carnet and they look at me and they go... Go park the van inside the garage over there and come, you know, and so basically, you know, they take everybody in one by one and, you know, I go in and I take my clothes off and take off my pants. And he's all very good. <laughs> <laughs> wow. <laughs> what does that mean? That's what I don't know what it means, but I just put my pants back on. And, I didn't get that. And then we, we drove. The show was at uh, Cafe, Cafe Blitz in Oslo. And we get to the show. And it's exactly, it's like the stereotypical thing you think of like Norwegian punk rockers on, it was like June 19th or something. It was like the longest day of the year. Like the sun never went down. And like we get there, you know, around showtime and there's, I don't know, you know, 80 or a hundred punks lying in the street, like a hundred, just like drunk lying in the street. (laughs) We get to the venue and the flyer is like a cop arresting naked people and on the flyer it says family victims. <laughs> and I remember I went to set up my gear and like I had to push a drunk punk off the stage and put my amp up on the stage and 
jam. So yeah, that's the story. We did get strip searched in Norway. Wow. Very good. So that was one story I was curious about. The other one was the Berlin Wall. Berlin Wall. I pissed on the Berlin Wall. There's and pictures. There's pictures. <laughs> yeah, we, we help break it down. Then. That's what it says online. Yeah. It says you help break it down. Now, is, is, are you classifying pissing on the wall as helping break it no, down? No, I mean, I actually have a chunk of the Berlin Wall oh, on my desk yeah. in we, my studio. Yeah, it was still spectacular. There was people there pretty much, I think, No, it was still it was still up. When no, it was first, still up, but yeah. there was people with sledgehammers. You yeah, know, you could second start, tour yeah. in 1990 when it came down. Yeah. And we were grabbing people's hammers. They're like, dude, get a piece. Yeah, oh, but man. the first time, pieces the first time we, were, we went, it was still up, yeah. and we, we we actually played in Poland on that tour while it was still months before this whole, maybe even weeks before this whole thing came down. Well, yeah, we remember it was the first democratic election in Poland, and yeah, because there was no booze, we couldn't buy yeah. vodka, we couldn't buy beer. <laughs> that was the thing. Yeah, we, it was the night we before knew. election. We got shut down. We weren't going to oh. make much money, and we couldn't really keep the money because there was no exchange rate. So, <laughs> oh, like, no means no told us. Well, what you got to do is just buy really good vodka. Yeah, just go to the. Like, just, you you know, just buy so vodka we get there and it's money. election day. And so it's election day, and they won't oh, sell us any. Man, no so we got to try to buy stuff at the flea market, and we finally just forget it. And we just gave all the money back to the promoter. Really, this means nothing. Nothing to us. <laughs> yes. Bye. So that that's a crazy right place, right time with the Berlin Wall. It was Absolutely. a great experience for sure yeah, to be bet. there at that moment, you know, because it all changed after that. You know, that was the end of the, wow. the cold, dark yeah. war, darkness. It really was the, uh, the, the actually, end of the old dark. Uh, the people started wearing clothes with colors on them. When we were there, it was all gray and brown. <laughs> no, it was really weird. Yeah, and because like I rem- dark, my memory man. of it, it was like, yeah, it's like everything was gray. Like we, I mean, it was it was totally like the thing you used to see about you know the East, Eastern Bloc you movies know, about like, communist and then Russia. Then we, yeah. Yeah, yeah, and then we like we went lines. to some restaurant where we were served some gruel, you know, some I mean, cab- like, cabbage rolls, yeah, and, some, and like, some yeah. weird, yeah. Shit. some weird, yeah, some weird gruel stuff, you know. White bread blues you joined the band sounds like it was essentially a dream come true for you tim correct and that joy really reinvigorated you guys that record is so fun yeah it yeah. is um there's so much energy to at it at that moment I mean, that was a lot of fun i think it sure. i think it gets uh incorrectly classified as your funk record just because of what a lot of a lot of funk was infiltrating the Sonoma yeah, County I mean, punk scene at that time. It was a pretty funky scene in those days, absolutely. But I, th- but I think it can definitely be called sort of a breakthrough record for you guys. Definitely. They you just kind of fell out. We would just get together and it seemed like a new song would come out of every rehearsal or an idea would spawn eventually into a song. Yeah. Every, we would always come up with something. So I think that's true. It did really like, you know, some new, new life into it. Mm-hmm. Because it seemed like it had been on a, you know, ever since the beginning of things I hate to admit, like it's over, you know. (laughs) And then also going to Europe was, you know, for the first time was amazing because people knew our stuff. I mean, people like a lot of people were freaking out and we met all kinds of cool people that we still know now. And so the story about Europe at that time is that the song Caged Bird actually entered the top 10 in the Netherlands right. on, on, the, on the radio what in Holland. What a great story that right. is. I mean, how did that happen? <laughs> well, I don't know. I mean, it just... It, uh, it has more to do with their diversity and taste. Yes. yes. We, were, I mean, we were between Paul Simon and Slayer. If that <laughs> on the chart, <laughs> we were eight. And around that time is when you started playing here at the Phoenix Theater. I remember the, the White yeah. Bread Blues yeah. record release show here. Yeah. Um, yeah. Packed to the gills as packed usual. Packed to the gills. For your we shows. played her a few times before White Bread Blues. You did. We did yeah. a show of Fire Hose, I remember. You'd played the River Theater a lot. You'd played yeah. the Katati Cabaret a lot. Katati you Cabaret. played, let's see, what, Ninth and Wilson, maybe. Oh, you know, I mean, yeah. all the, and tons of backyard parties and uh, living room yeah. shows. What, what was the vibe 
at the Phoenix? How was it different? Well, it's my hometown, so yeah, I was, was digging it. All my friends were here. <laughs> yeah, we, we were always pretty proud of Timmy here anyway, so that was I, big I mean, stuff. I think by the time we really got going in the Phoenix Theater, which is beyond, I mean, this is obviously not a nightclub or a bar, and there was actually not 10 people standing out front. Yeah. I mean, you, it just it, it captures you no matter what as a performer or if you're in the audience and there's 200 people and not 20 people. Yeah. So the momentum just like started whipping so fast. You know, the shows got bigger and bigger, bigger. so quick after White Bread Blues came out. It was... But it was just kind of like this natural uh, evolution of playing the Bloomfield blowout, playing (laughs) like, you know, playing like in Tamales in somebody's backyard, playing the cabaret, playing the... And I I really really think that um, this band actually happened because of the scene in this town. And in this town, in this county, there's a lot of factors to being in a band in this area i think that are really helpful for one there's enough of a scene to where like you can play somewhere i mean the phoenix always like i said i used to go to metal shows like when i was in high school here i've been coming to the phoenix already for what over 10 years before i actually played here probably i just think that the scene that was happening here just kind of naturally moved into this place as you yeah, sort of made it more into yeah. a space that was open for that. Yeah. You know? It seemed like there was finally a home for everything that was been going on. It was right. a nice fit yeah. for the times. All yeah, we had to do was, was make sure that we weren't competing with somebody's beer bust. Uh, that was <laughs> right. one thing we learned early. If there's a huge party going on, we shouldn't do a show that night because you can never compete with free beer in those days. <laughs> right, exactly. <laughs> Other exactly. than that, we, were, we had a pretty open... But people were really sp- into the music. I mean, that was yeah. the thing. It was also that time for this music. And you know? know what it was? It was all the people that Timmy grew up with in this town, that's for sure. Uh, you, could, definitely you could list we, hundreds of people. It's funny, but and, I mean, with Victim's family starting in Santa Rosa and, and me from Petaluma, I mean, we kind of adopted the Petaluma thing because of this place, I would say, because this would be our home show you know you'd go out and tour all around the states and we tour europe and we come around the states again and it's like okay we gotta get back to home and we're, yeah, we're to the phoenix. phoenix theater tom what date can you give us yeah yeah and boom there'd be 1200 people trying yeah. to squeeze their asses in here and it was, that was like the best. we made it we're home yeah. yeah and all our friends are here having a good time building to be sweating yeah it was great <laughs> all ages place yeah. yep you know yeah. i mean yeah. it's the the one place where you could do all ages shows and here. still drink beer yeah, yeah. <laughs> no, yeah, yeah. Unofficially, yeah. wait. Uh, Unofficial. that's, don't put that one on the. Uh, no, no, you can yeah. put it like that. Was in the nineties. <laughs> it was. It was a different time in Petaluma. It used to drive me crazy, but there was no fighting the tide. You know, it yeah. was holy cow. So you wound up signing with Alternative Tentacles after that. Well, yeah, more than folded mm-hmm. pretty much. So we were left with no label. Do you remember that, that meeting we had at Ruth's house? I do. That was a great meeting. What was it? Want to tell well, us about it? Yeah, I don't. I don't really remember the chronology. I know that I was late, and they were already there. And um, I had this big plan. Like, you know, we had heard that Mordam was folding as a label, and we were like, oh, we really want to like be on Alternative Tentacles. So, like, we had this whole wanted us. Yeah, and he wanted us, and we had this whole. Had you to, know, I mean, they were. He had to they, promise Ruth that he wouldn't steal us. You know, they were in the same building they were yeah, on they rogers street shared an office space across, on rogers like across the hall from you know so there's like all this you know us with this palace intrigue of like okay we're gonna like coming up with this plan to talk make, to ruth about like move. so um i show up late to this meeting and they're already there ruth's like off in the other room or something they're like dude dude it's okay it's all done <laughs> really <laughs> there's nothing to it like you know it's like you don't have to say anything you know it's like they they want to she's Quitting yeah, the label yeah. anyway. Your debut on Alternative Tentacles was The Germ, mm-hmm. released in 1992. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And 1992, you had your first hiatus. 
Yes. We broke up. <laughs> Why? <laughs> I have a small problem with drinking. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> the great motivator. Yeah. Not being able to stop is yeah. actually the problem. So, yeah. I also can't stop playing music. So, uh, so then we got back together after about less than a year. I want to ask a kind of a personal question. Because for all of the uh, sort of political and social issues that you uh, sang about in your songs, uh, there was always this uh, strain of sort of self-critical songwriting right, of sure. yours. Uh-huh. Um, abuse on right. uh-huh. Voltage and Violets. Um, what, uh, See the aforementioned drug problem. I'm such a <laughs> jerk. <laughs> I'm, I'm such a jerk was on the jerk. All of them. Um, yeah. with, uh, my evil twin. Right. Uh-huh. Um, and then on Headache Remedy, there's the song White Picket Fence. Right. Um, which would seem to possibly directly refer to your uh, previous uh, hiatus and reasons for it. Right. Uh-huh. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. It was. Oh, sure. Yeah. No, I mean, I mean how can it not... It, like, how can your own life not be seeping into your yeah. writing? I mean, it's, yeah. it's what, what it's all about, right? Like you have something to, to share about it. I mean, and like to me, after having the hiatus, you know, I felt more sort of in touch with why I felt that way. You know, mm-hmm. I, I feel like, uh, you know, before I got sober, like I had no... <laughs> Like, there was no control to whatever all that, you know, I'm such a jerk, like, abuse, like, all that, all those, like, that strain, you know. Mm-hmm. Now, I understand it's just part of humanity. Like, we're light, we're dark, we're all those things, you know. Like, it's part of it. Yeah, White Picket Fence is just about romantic illusions. And it's just funny, like, everybody's got them, right? Or I do, at least. No, mm-hmm. I've been disabused <laughs> of a lot of them <laughs> over the last few years, but... Uh, uh-huh. Yeah, age does that. Yes. <laughs> There's also a lot of fun stuff on that record. Yeah, yeah. Griselda the Cable Lady. Is yeah. A, Come on now. It's a totally fun song. <laughs> yeah. I, brought, I brought that one in. Tim's oh, lyrical contribution. <laughs> yeah. She was yeah. the woman I paid my cable bill to at Viacom out off by the Steel Bear Deli out there. Yeah, out by the Steel Bear Deli. Yes, to drive out there. Used to have to drive out there and That pay. lady's yeah. name was Griselda. She had the name yeah. We all Griselda. had that same experience. It's a true story. Immortalized wow. in song. Wow. It kind of starts to make less and less sense as we get to this point in the story to kind of go year by year. Well, we did break up again. Yeah. yeah. I mean, that That's, was the thing. We broke up. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But that led up to... Uh, Saturn's Flea Collar, which was yeah. post-breakup, yeah, and yeah, Jason great living. And Saturn's Flea Collar was a band of yours. Yeah, yes. and we rehearsed right here on yes. this stage. Yeah. Thanks to Tom. Thank you. Yeah. Right, we broke up and you know didn't, yeah, didn't want to play to together this, yeah, anymore, but, and then they needed a guitar player, so they called me. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, we were actually trying to not have a guitar player. We, we auditioned like a horn guy, a keyboard guy, and then, and then we kept running into each other. And like, what are you doing? I'm looking for a band. What are you doing? Uh, looking for a guitar player. <laughs> oh, <Yeah>. okay. <laughs> <laughs> okay, I guess we're not done playing together. Actually, I think we should talk about like the, the band breaking up there, like Victim's Family actually disbanding there, because I think what happened really was, I think we got to a point, because I think that Headache Remedy did well. You know, we were still touring. Things were, you know, cool. But I think we were 10 years into it, and we, we toured a lot. And the early tour was really tough. And then when Whitebeard Blues was about to happen and then happened and then Germ, that, that f- like three or four years right there was mm-hmm. pretty relentless. And then, you know, Headache Remedy, there was 
quite a bit of touring around that as well. So I think you're 10 years into it and, and we're just burned out, man. Mm-hmm. I mean, we're just burnt out. And you know, there was an interesting thing going on as well, though. Um, and it's a phenomenon that I'm seeing coming back around in my generation. I'm about to hit 60. And son of a bitch, if all of my friends aren't starting to go see shows again, mm-hmm. and it's because it's empty nest. Their families are finally grown and moved on, and these yeah. people are ready to go back out. But at that same time, 10 years in for you guys, your crowd also started going different directions. They mm-hmm. were growing up. They were right, moving sure. on. and Absolutely. Yeah. And, and the whole scene really... Uh, I was, I was in this room probably in 96 or 97 one night looking at a show that should have been full. I wonder, what the hell happened? And it took me a couple of years to realize, oh, one generation grew up. Another yeah. generation moves in shortly after that. But you guys also had a generational thing happening right at that time in your life. Right. So I think that had an awful lot to do with it. Well, yeah. I, I think also we, we really put a lot into the band, always. I mean, always. We would rehearse three nights a week. We would make sure we knew every little stop and start. And you put everything into it and then go to a show and play and there's like, you know, 25 people there. And like, then you go yeah, and do that geez. like a hundred times. And you go on tour yeah. and, like, and there's like six 25 people every yeah. night and you're getting paid 50 bucks and you're yeah. just like, you go home, you don't got any money. Yeah. You go to oh. Europe and it was like, okay, finally, we get, go over here for a month. and yeah. Right. It just kind of hit that point where yep. we all said, oh, dude, we just got to stop doing this. Well, and, and so financially, it started to not... No, for, see, the thing is, is like... Financially, it was fine. Like we were, we were making money. Everything's cool. It's just the toll that it takes on you psychologically yeah. more than anything, yeah. you know. And you just kind of like want to do different things. And I think we were just sick of sitting in a van together. And then like we broke up. And then like Sony called you like the next day, right, or something. <laughs> or, like <laughs> some record label called you the next I thought day. Atlantic Records called you, and you failed to tell <laughs> us about it because you didn't want anything to do with it. <laughs> no, I thought it was you, and Sony called you. <laughs> Debbie Gordon told me that. Atlantic called, and you kiboshed it because you were done. No. Debbie Gordon told me, hey, right. We're having a moment right here. Hold on a second. That's, what, De- 20 Debbie? years ago? So what, what year are we talking about with this big breakup? 94. 94. Yeah. 94. 20 years ago. Yeah. yeah. You know, so Larry started Saturn's Flea Caller, yeah. and I wasn't doing anything, so we, I started playing with those guys, and you were... I started working for Primus again after 94 when we broke yeah. up and yeah. you guys I, I went out and worked for bands mm-hmm. I was with Primus till 98 mm-hmm. from 94 yeah. till 98 and then basically the pattern for Saturn's Flea Caller was like one single you know like one LP one single one US tour one European tour and done and then he got sick of, I remember playing a show with Saturn's Flea Caller in Lincoln, Nebraska and Larry having a hard time breaking down his drums like Help me, Mr. Wizard. I don't want to be a drummer anymore. Ah, you know, he's just like, I hate drumming. You know, Was there a point where you guys just realized we were born to do Victim's Family? Let's well, just do it again. And then we just, well, and then we did the same thing with Hellworms. With Hellworms. Right? Yeah. Because it was kind of like one of the, you know, do a, a band with him playing bass. Yeah, I wanted to get back on bass. Yeah. Uh-huh. Uh, but we didn't want to do Victim's Family. Yeah. I mean, we just yeah, like, we, still... we just wanted it to be a different thing, you know. And we went on tour in Europe, and I remember, I think it was Chavi uh, Manresa in Spain going like, fuck the principles, man. Like, why didn't just call it Victim's Family? Well, yeah, everyone was saying, <laughs> everyone was saying that. No means no, Jello. Everyone's going, they're crazy. Why, like, why don't they just call it Because that? it's not but, Victim's Family. It, was yeah, just, we, it, it wasn't. For one, know? we didn't want to do those songs, and... Mm-hmm. You we know. felt like out of respect to the past, we couldn't do... The but then we decided to fuck the principles and get a different drummer. So, you know, <laughs> yeah. it's, it's painful for Tim right here, I think. No, it's not. Not at all. <laughs> you guys asked me before you asked Dave Gleason. 
I got the formal letter. Yeah. Oh, okay. The form- 2000. You got the right of first refusal. Two thousand one. One. Two thousand or two thousand. I got the letter. We want to do it again. So then, yeah. So, so you, then you, we did. Yeah. So you filled the void in like the mid to late nineties with Saturn's Flea Collar and Hellworms, mm-hmm. and then yeah, two, which were both great projects, yeah. actually. Yeah. Though. They were. I like both of those yeah, projects. I do too. I don't dislike any very of much. Stuff. Your most recent LP, As Victims Family, was released in two thousand one. Right. Yeah. And how did that come about? Well, Hellworms broke up. Basically, Joaquin got. Road rash, you know. Yeah, and and like, okay, now we have to. We need another drummer and another name, and like. So then we're like, fuck it. Okay, we are just going to be victims' family again. <laughs> 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 and we we kind of like wanted to play some new stuff, and Tim's off doing roadie okay. stuff. Well, then it was a long, painful. Oh God, <laughs> trial I forgot. Yeah, I think we had open it. auditions for drummers, and there was like it you was know just there was like some unbelievably <laughs> horrible. Well, I gotta, I gotta say, when Victim's Family holds an audition for a drummer, ninety nine point nine 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 percent of the drummers in the world are not going to make a fit. You would think so. Some people were. Some people like that didn't like us were like doing performance art shit. You know, like showing up like to purposely botch the audition. Somebody somebody that wanted Ralph to book him a tour. That's a good one. It's like, well, I don't really play drums, but I wanted Ralph to book my band a tour. Like. <laughs> You're going about this all wrong. <laughs> yeah. But uh, but anyway, we've got Dave Gleza, who had been in uh, the band My Name. He agreed to, to move down with his girlfriend from Washington. Kind of the same stuff, you know. You just like start writing a bunch of songs, and Dave's drumming was like kind of different. You know, I thought he did a great job of doing the old stuff for being like kind of a different drummer from what we done before i really love that record actually apocalicious it's kind of goes in a lot of different directions that we hadn't gone before it's very heavy actually in a lot of ways but it just kind of came into the same cycle as like saturn's flea collar and hellworms it's like one record you know like one single yeah. one european tour and then like everybody's like <laughs> burned out you know what i mean how was it on those apocalicious tours trying to win back a public that maybe had forgotten about Victim's Family a little bit. Well, not only that, but a a lot had changed, I think, just in the scene. DJs had really taken over. Rock in general was really losing favor. I mean, it was very, very obvious. Oh, yeah. Shows in general, just rock shows were not doing well. And so it was especially hard time to try to reestablish your name. And the record came out on 9-11 so, yeah. uh, you know, yeah. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> it's a little overshadowed by other events. by other events, and Just, we actually yeah. the European tour began on um, October 11th. October eleventh, actually two thousand one. Right, wow. you know, so like, and then and then yeah. my mother died on like October second, and uh, I went to her funeral, and then left uh, for the European tour, and then three days after I got back, my dad died. So it was like. <laughs> <laughs> a lot of tumults. So, and I, it was yeah. like yeah. about six months after being dumped by my girlfriend. So it was like, you know, it was just wow. really kind of a... But so <laughs> many bands had yeah, canceled their tours because of that. Like yeah. so many American bands didn't want to fly. Yeah. So yeah. that was another yeah. thing. We get over there and there's like no bands. Like everybody so like canceled. A, everybody who was going to shows were at our shows. They were yeah. like, you know, we, you're here. It's like, yeah. 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 So the tour did okay attendance wise. It was okay. It was you know, okay. it was fine. Right. It was but, fine. It was smaller. Fine. You know, that was the thing. It was smaller. It was, we had not kept doing Victim's Family. So it's like, oh, Victim's Family. Blah, people don't know that it's, you know, the 
didn't know that the record existed really i think but again i think that had to do with the political climate and the, the music climate and the raves just that time you know raves well so for you with all the personal tumult i mean do you look back on that is it a blur well yeah it was pretty i mean it was hectic i never had a year like that before you know um yeah it was it was tough i mean it was it was emotionally but it was weird because, like, my mom died, and then I was talking about my parents had been divorced for like people always ask me like, "Wow, that must have been really strange. like your dad must have really missed your mom." It was like they were divorced for thirty years, like she hated him. And I was <laughs> yes. like, I don't know. I was talking to my dad before I left for the Europe tour, and he was like, and, and a couple of other friends were like, you "Just go, you know, just go." Like, you know, it's like, what good would you it do to you to to not go? Like, do for you to not go? Just go, you know. So it was weird because I was having a lot of grief yeah. strange we had an incident with a bouncer in paris and i just you know this went really awful guy just like went totally ballistic and started like that's a great story but it's <laughs> gonna take a long time to tell it <laughs> <laughs> next time what did you, did you beat him up or something no <laughs> but you, you got a racist dutch drunk uh tour manager ours <laughs> not overtly racist <laughs> and, until he's drunk though yeah. um but anyway so we show up at the place Wait, yeah. in paris le devon du monde the couch of the world <laughs> and um well in the city of paris and actually up throughout france there's a lot of decibel meters 100 db meters like regulations so and in this particular venue there was a limiter on the desk 100 dbs yeah. And we have a snare drum that's like 104, you know? So, like, basically, we could have drums or bass or, you know, I could sing or play guitar. (laughs) So we did this, like, marathon sound check, trying to make this thing work. You understand, if we go over 100... The PA it, it shuts down. So, like the PA shuts down. That's what a down. limiter is. It just yeah. 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 There's a red light above the soundboard, and like you know, everything. yeah, okay. and it's gone. Oh man! Right. So we get the bright idea. We're going to use the opening band's bass rig to play and just bypass the to PA. Sing through, yeah. We're just going to yeah. sing through that. We got a like a. Oh yeah. I mean, so we just use the opening band's bass rig for me to sing. There's only one mic. You just know, like put I, it right at the edge of the stage. Like, uh-huh. Put it right at the edge of the stage. Sure. <laughs> So we play the show like that. We're like, fuck you and guys, we won't use the PA. We don't need your PA, you know? So, so we do that. And a bunch of kids show up, like 220 yeah, people it or something. It was, really, it was pretty good. And it's a small venue. So play the show, and you know, there's a lot of tension between us and the venue um, because we did this. And um, so we're getting done with the show. They shut us down. Like, they shut the power to the stage at the end of the show. It's like, it's over, yeah. you know? So I go into the backstage and I'm like to change my shirt or something. I can hear some commotion going on outside. And our Dutch tour manager is a very good friend of mine, but he <laughs> likes to throw them back. Mm-hmm. Um, we'll say a lot of inappropriate stuff at that moment. Anyway, I was getting into a verbal sparring match with the seven foot African bouncer seriously tall dude who was trying to kick all the kids out of the place and we were like trying to sell merchandise just you know for like 15 minutes yeah. or something after the show and that, that's what sparked the the anger it's like you guys can't even sell merch you got to go right yeah and then, and then and that's no, a, and then this merch. is stupid me like you know i'm gonna go talk to this guy i'm gonna i'm gonna talk to him like i don't speak french <laughs> but i'm gonna go talk to him you know <laughs> so i go and talk to this giant person and i'm just like 
you guys have been fucking with us all day long. We're just going to sell some merch for like 10 minutes. He grabs me by my shirt and like throws me onto the stage <laughs> into a pile, at which point JW starts spewing. Oh, no. He does speak French does. and knows some choice words inappropriate. And the guy goes into the other room and grabs a lead pipe and starts chasing everyone out of the venue with a lead pipe. And basically we got kids, fans, like grabbing gear, like, take it to the van, oh my God, ah! You know, like everybody's like, he's grabbing women and throwing them. It's just oh. like, he just went like insanely crazy. Not unjustified it's either. It's like a cartoon, I, I mean. It's a total, it was a total cartoon. So we get everything outside, and it's the last show in France. And so the guy that put on all the shows in France were like settling with him. But we got this like totally insane dude like trying to charge the van and all this, this kind of stuff. This is the bouncer. This is the bouncer, and this is still going. He's go. being restrained. He's being restrained by his friends. And then like we finally get everything into the van, and we take off, and it begins. I'm not kidding. A low speed car chase through the streets of Paris. <laughs> And <laughs> and finally, we lose these guys. And uh, yeah, <laughs> that was, that and that's the, when I started crying. That was the start about of my mom. Uh, <laughs> so you called it quits after that. At a certain point, you came back in the fold. Yeah, well, we did our ah, yeah, we did our twenty years. It was the twenty year anniversary. The twenty year anniversary. Right. So I got, played here. Nice. We played yeah. the bottom of the hill. Yeah, mm-hmm. I got the call. I'd been ten years since I played with these guys. Yeah. You so were busy. That would have been tough to get you off the road yourself at that point, probably. Were you I was around Crow in those days? Uh, yep, or, yep. Yeah, and, But I was around, and I said, "Hell yes, I will do that." Yeah. Twenty then, years. We got to do something. Yeah. And then they were like, "Okay, we're gonna do this for." All our other bands are going to be opening for us. Oh, and I was like, right. wow, you guys. I didn't have a band at the time, so I was yeah. like, Ooh, lucky me. Ten years ago, 2004, insane. you had that 20th mm-hmm. anniversary. Yeah. Yeah. But you did kind of continue to be a band after that. I mean, well, yeah. yeah, that's the thing. Yeah, yeah. I mean, those shows went so well. I mean, I yeah. had such a great time. I, I mean, the energy and the electricity in the room when we all three got together to rehearse it for the first time was like, damn. Yeah. So, so then we just started. pretty cool. Playing shows. Yeah. yeah. You know, we've been a band again for 10 yeah. years. 10 years. 10 years. We haven't exactly put out a lot of records. <laughs> uh, <laughs> One single in 10 years. It's not, you know, we're not exactly are you Are you writing new stuff? Or? I think we always yeah, write, right. but we, it's, it's actually logistically really challenging to get yeah. together with him living yeah. In, yeah. in Grass Valley Grass and Valley. being on the road. But I think we, what we just realized, I think, after playing those shows was like, this, is, this band is Victim's Family, and it's yeah. kind of like... You know, if we can make another record, it'd be great. I, I think the concept is singles for a while. You know, mm-hmm. if we can like start sure. start writing, like start cranking those out because those are pretty fun to do and easy to do. And man, I'm like 52. You know what I mean? Like, I I I don't want to like practice three times a week the rest of my life, man. Yeah. You know what I mean? Like, but I, I but did you do that. anyway. <laughs> <laughs> well, no, I see. That's the thing. I don't. I've been manipulating situations with jello so it was like we rehearse for a tour <laughs> it's yeah, like it's writing it's one thing you yeah know. so, so like, trying to write that's one we'll thing, tell but. the people out there so two of you guys play with jello biafro and the uh guantanamo school of medicine yes absolutely. and so how did that come about were the seeds planted for that when you first opened for him as victim's family in 1985 or in like he took notice of you guys at that point obviously yeah yeah no we met it was 86 at the Novato theater the Novato on Grand Street. That's right. Was there a relationship that was formed that night, you think? You know, starting to, and then, how did that happen? Well, basically, in the late 90s, 
again, when Larry and I were playing with Plainfield, at that time, John Weiss, basically, basically the original lineup of Guantanamo School of Medicine got together in like 97 or 98. Jello was trying to put some songs together. And yeah, Bill Gould from Faith No More and John Weiss was playing drums. And that band almost got started, but Larry and I had just started Hellworms. Um, so then um, his 50th birthday was approaching. Yeah, mm-hmm. that was a big Six years ago. Yeah, that was the big catalyst for it. And he had been playing a bunch with the... Um, Actually, it was Iggy's 60th that started it. But. Yeah, because he saw Iggy play on his 60th birthday. He was like, oh, if Iggy Pop can do it, I can do it. You know, know. So <laughs> he, he was older been, than me. He hadn't been playing a lot in the lead up to that, or he just didn't have like a project? I mean, Joe had, had been collaborating with people ever since the Dead Kennedys broke up, but he hadn't had a band since then, you know? So, I mean, when I went over there, went over to Europe for the first time with Jello, like he, he had played three music shows in Europe but before Guantanamo School of Medicine in between the times of Dead Kennedys. Like, he hadn't been there on tour with a band except for like three shows with the melvins uh since 1987 so, it so people were freaking i mean people were yeah, freaking right. out man like yeah. <laughs> when we went over there the first time it was like yeah. crazy yeah because because we talk about like the last 10 years 2004 was essentially like the new and current chapter of victim's family it's not your primary project <laughs> sort of something yeah. you revisit every once in a while whereas yeah. jello's band is sort of what you're doing more regularly yeah exactly yeah. and so that started Six years ago, so 2008, yeah. basically. Where you are in 2014, you're celebrating your 30th anniversary. Yeah. Are you happy with the flow of Victims Family? I mean, would you like to do more, or are you just pretty comfortable with what you guys are doing now? I think we want to do stuff. Like, I want like to do important more, stuff. Like, I want to do cool stuff, like stuff like this. I want to do yeah. shows that are, you know, good. I want us, like, to, if we're going to write, like, I want us to sit down and write, like, a couple songs, go record them, like, do it. It's like, for the European, if we can, like, fudge a small European tour, if we can, like, play some weird shows, like, in the, like, I don't think we, we, you know, because we got friends that, like, always want to, hey, man, come play, like, this bar down in the mission. It's like, who cares, man? Like, we don't need to do that. Or we can, just if it not, sounds like a great not idea. Not twice every month. Yeah. Like, you know, once a year, like, we'll go do a show at a bar in the mission. Okay. But yeah. you right. know, sometimes you, you get 10 calls. Maybe catch bottom of the two hill. Two months for that same stuff. Yeah. But yeah. Uh, I think we want to do like special stuff. I think we spent a lot of time in this band being in a hurry to do things, you know, getting records out so we could go do tours. And I think that's what broke Victim's Family up in 1994 was like, this kind of like fake pressure that you put on yourself to like keep putting things out, you know, like you don't even realize you're doing it. You're just burning yourself out because you think you, because you are trying to have a career right? I don't know what it is, or you just get bored or you just like want to keep doing it. You know, I mean, it's all, all those things like at once, like, Oh, I gotta go. I want to go play shows. I love playing shows. It's really my favorite thing to do. And yeah, realistically, so. you're never going to get sick of playing Corona Belly for the 400th time. Yeah, but I also think there's a point of diminishing returns because, man, I mean, aging is a real thing. You know what I mean? So it's like, so when's the right time to hang it up? Oh, you know no, you've got a ways. I keep doing yoga, you know? So, I mean, like, I mean, you know, I feel like I, you know, swim and I ride my bike. And well, what, yoga. Do, what does age have to do with it for you, though? I mean, physically? It doesn't really. It, no, I mean, I just, I just think it's physically demanding music, and I think if I felt like I couldn't do it anymore, I wouldn't. Yeah. And but that's the thing. It's like, I'm always thinking about quitting everything. You know, that's just, that's just, that's just me. I'm just like, 
Middle finger, he just yeah. did for that. <laughs> <laughs> right. now, uh, one ironic point I will note that in the booklet for the White Bear Blues re-release, a bunch of your photos are in there, I think, actually. I contributed some of them, yeah. too much to but, that booklet. But actually. you gave us a bunch of photos one time. And, I did. and if you look through those photos and look at the set list from 15, 10 years ago or whatever, it's like 22 songs, maybe. And like we do never less than 31 songs now, 30 years into it. Like yeah, we seem to cram more and more. Oh, man. As tired as you get or the older you get, we seem to want to just go, no, we got, we got to play more and more. It's like, yeah. <laughs> here's the other factoid. It's that it's the 20th anniversary of our last show ever. Right. Yeah. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. 94. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Which was documented and documented on the live album. At the Milk Bag. Yeah. Yeah. Four right. Great Thrash songs. Oh, yeah, that's right. Wow. <laughs> but without that powder keg atmosphere of having to write, record, tour, write, right. record, tour right. over and over again. Right. If you do ever stop playing music, it won't be because of that. It no, I mean, I don't think I'm going to stop playing music yeah. ever. I just, I, I guess the only thing I'm trying to say is I would like Victim's Family to end before it's like, oh, <laughs> I still want it to be um, challenging for people. You know what I mean? Like, mm. I still want it to be, I, to me, the band is, it's, it's back to the original point that you made is that you can't ignore it. And as we talk about, like, legacy and still doing it, there's a great quote from an interview you did earlier this year. You were playing a show in Lake Tahoe. Uh-huh. There was a guy complaining about you guys preaching to the choir, essentially. Right, uh-huh. Basically, you said that there's an old saying that says you have to preach to the choir to keep them singing. Right. And that people need to be inspired by music and shows because everything in our modern economy discourages people. And you hope that people look at your music and look at you and say, hey, I can do that too. Yeah. And that's why you feel that what you're doing is still valuable and oh, important. Absolutely. Yeah. And so yeah. I, I, on that point, we did the show with Gabe like three months ago, This another episode of this thing. And he mentioned how powerful your lyrics were ahead of the time they yeah. were uh, even 30 years ago yeah because they're still poignant today and you know <laughs> 1984 I, I was born in 1984 <laughs> all right um so, yeah. but i mean he, he he quoted on the episode homophobic this is great that song was crazy when it came out i mean yeah. <laughs> uh, way ahead of its time really. and now gay marriage is legal in almost every state yeah but that battle yeah. is still being fought in some places and that's what's so, so ahead of its time but especially in especially it. in the punk scene yeah. I mean, you know, to break yeah. it down so clearly, it's saying it's a fear of insecurity that arises out of one's sexuality, exacerbated by society, looks upon sex as a commodity, sets standards of masculine and femininity. I mean, that is so ahead of yeah, its time. I was you trying s- to make it rhyme, man. It seems like you're... <laughs> <laughs> Honestly, there are, people, there are people still in 2014, Genius, even with all the, all the LGBT stuff, everything right. more equal, people still struggle with that. And Dude. that wasn't your only song that was ahead of its time. No, I think you guys were calling out Rush Limbaugh. Uh, how long ago did you write that song for <laughs> Right, that song, White Bear Blues. Oh, yeah, yeah, I mean, that was in 94. I'm hiding in the stretch marks in Rush Limbaugh's butt. <laughs> That's one of my favorite lines. <laughs> Holy shit. It's kind of a gross thought when you get right down to it. However, and White Bear uh, Blues, like Supermarket yeah. Nightmare, was about basically organic, locally yep. raised food. Right. You know, and or rallying against food that was factory. There farm. were no Whole yeah. Foods back then. Um, and what they're doing to fruits and vegetables, to yeah. they don't even resemble fruits anymore. Yeah. I mean, yeah. that didn't become an issue, it seemed, that That's, people cared about until like the last 10 years on a larger scale. Yeah. Yeah. Um, environmentalism, like Times Beach was one right. of your early songs. Um, racism, Nazi Inside of My Head, uh, Homophobia we talked about. Uh, naive Children, which was about the music industry and how yeah. insidious and horrible it was, which... Napster made everyone aware of, <laughs> you know, years right. later. God, Jerry and the PMRC was about censorship. Yep. Um, even Native American rights. The, uh, mm-hmm. Buffalo. Uh, Buffalo. Yeah, Buffalo. Buffalo. Um, I mean, these are all things that became major issues in the mainstream yeah, media. Yeah, you were way ahead of the ball on that one. Years later. 
Yeah. You know? And I was thinking about it today. Where did you get information about these issues back then? Because the internet did not exist. Right. Ralph yeah. grew up without a TV. Wow. <laughs> there was no TV for a long time, but mm-hmm. I got a TV for my 12th birthday or something. And his, his mm-hmm. world opened. We said, oh my God, this world is <laughs> black and up. white. I mean, it's, it, it, they, are the, they are the lyrics of an ultra-aware uh, writer. That was one of the things about like, um, finding maximum rock and roll. My mom was like really politically aware. You know, I was into heavy rock music, and there was just like a lot of talk about politics in my house so just like when i tuned in and heard maximum rock and roll it was like all these bands doing like heavy like i was looking for i heard that music in my head like i want to hear that and so then i heard it and then it was also had this political thing so there was like a lot of alternative media happening before there was the internet it was almost like the internet had to happen because all that stuff was happening in print anyways. You yeah, know, well, there whatever. were a ton of zines out in those there, yeah, days. Yeah, there was a lot of exchange of information, I think, yeah, at shows was. with pamphlets. Actually, you know what, that's true, booths, yes. Uh, there were always booths shows, every show. Yeah, uh, yeah. And I was in college, and I was just learning a lot of stuff, you know? Like, mm-hmm. I was just, like, exposed to a lot of stuff. There was, there was, like, political rallies at the JC, and, like, I was in my 20s, and I was pissed off. Yeah. You're not Re- so pissed Reagan off. Reagan was like, president, dude. Yeah. Yeah. Like, I mean, <laughs> people don't understand, man, like, Sucked. Well, another great, another great, another great thing about Victims Family is that you also, in you were able to make political statements. Yet you also kind of took political punk bands to task for being Reagan sucks. Well, that was the thing I kind of learned early on. Like, I think was if, yeah. I, if anyone was too didactic or preachy, it was like not. <laughs> Up your alley. Well, yeah, there's, it's kind of one of the ironies of Victim's Family. Is like I, anything I wanted to say politically, and I don't know that I've done this perfectly, but I, I just wanted to say so it would still be relevant later. Because I look at those songs now, and I think they still they hold up. They still resonate. Know? Yeah. And that's one of the things about playing with Jello is like now more than ever, his vision of um, how things are and the fact that he's still writing music yeah. and still being relevant, I think is cool. That's one of the things that makes it really interesting to work with him. And then I think as I've, over time, I've become sort of less interested in being overtly political rather than just kind of like talking about on a more personal level about mm-hmm. those kind of things. Because I think that punk rock is really about freedom of expression. Yeah. I, I think that Punk became sold as a, you know, fashion statement or a musical style or whatever. And and I think that we, when I got into it, I was really turned on by the fact that it wasn't that. Yeah. And that it didn't have to be that. And I love, you know, like straight, flat out punk, you know, like whatever. Like, I, I love all that stuff. It's great. But uh, there's a ton of bands that can do that for you, you know. And we're not one of them. <laughs> we can do that, but when, when we're going to turn it on its ear and we're yeah. going to like feed it back to you in a way that you might not like. Right. And <laughs> that's kind of our role here. And I'm, I'm comfortable with that. I can say, though, that um, I routinely, um, if people ask me what the greatest band from Sonoma County is, Victim's yeah. Family is easily at the yeah. top of the list. Um, and your longevity Thanks. has a lot to do with it. Yeah. Obviously, your personal influence on me has a lot to do with it. Your um, oh, ferocious creativity yes. has a lot to do with it. Yeah, and timeless a, message. Time- timeless message has a lot to do with it, and the fact that you 
with no material out or anything to sell, decided to go on tour. You know, that uh, nothing stopped you from the beginning. And uh, it seems like nothing is going to stop you now. (laughs) I mean, what have we talked about the last two hours? I mean, so many things got in the way, and you still are doing it We've learned the limitations as a trio of human beings how to keep it going and not give up. Yeah, and Tim, that's Timmy something actually, to be really. You should be really, really proud of that. Yeah, absolutely. You really and, should. You Thanks, know, I'm, I'm thinking that Timmy's actually going to have the biggest problem uh, to get in his way in, in the next couple of years. He's about to go into two teenage daughters. Good lord! No, it's a really special time. I, you know, I've been watching people's teenagers for yeah, thirty years. I almost fall in the same market as a teenager. You guys. <laughs> I, I seriously have been coming to the Phoenix Theater. When I was a kid, it was a showcase back then. Yeah, it was a showcase. And even when it was the Phoenix, there was the soft seats down to the front. And yeah. Tom Gaffey, God bless his soul, me and my teenage 13, 14s with our cigarettes and beers. Oh, man. Tom would politely come down and go, come on, you guys. Come on, please. Come on. Come on, please. And we'd be like, you're killing me. Oh, this guy's super cool. He's not going to kick us out. All right, no. we'll put our cigarettes out. You know, this is cool. What a crew. Yeah, and you know, so that's sort of an understated <laughs> fact in tonight what we're doing. I mean, Gabe, when he got here, he was showing me right on stage right how he would stand there and look at you, Ralph, while you were singing. And how many times yeah. did that happen? Probably plenty of shows, right? Yeah. We talked about the long history of this band, but you know, it's really cool that we're here right now in 2014 yeah. talking about it because this building and this band have gone absolutely o- so many overlaps. Yeah, absolutely amazing. Yeah. Great journey to watch. And we, uh, Tom and I, say thank you all for thank you being yeah, here. Yeah, right on. Thank, thank you guys. Thank you. Yeah, it's really special. Thank cool. you. Thank you. Thank you. Right, thanks.